Well, thanks very much, everyone, for uh, coming along today. Uh, my name is Andrew Lee, the federal member for Fenner. Uh, can I acknowledge we're meeting on traditional lands, the Ngunnawal people, Dauranuna, Dauran Ngunnawal, Yungu, Nalamanyan, Dunimanyan, Ngunnawalwari, Dauranwari, Dindi, Wangaralan, Jinyan. I want to acknowledge two any Indigenous people present today uh, and commit myself as a member of the government to the implementation in full of the Uluru Statement from the Heart. The Fenner Lecture is an annual lecture held in honour of the fact that I have the privilege to represent a seat named after the great Frank Fenner, a bloke who was one of Australia's great microbiologists who announced the end of smallpox to the World Health Organisation Assembly uh, and who once, in an attempt to show the Australian public that myxomatosis wouldn't make the jump from rabbits to humans, publicly injected himself with enough myxomatosis virus to kill a thousand rabbits. That's true commitment to science. This year's Fennel Lecturer is the remarkable Emma Johnson. Uh, Emma grew up as the child of two scientists uh, and enjoyed sailing as a, uh, as a young girl. That got her interested in studying biology and she did biology at the University of Melbourne. Uh, she's gone on to win uh, about as many prizes in science as there are. She's won the Eureka Prize, she's won the Nancy Mills Prize, uh, she is the uh, fellow of two of the learned Australian Learned Academies and a past president of Australian Science and Technology. Uh, she's worked hard to improve the uh, participation of women in STEM, uh, somebody who is a role model and a mentor to many. Uh, she's the Deputy Vice-Chancellor of the University of Sydney, uh, which means that uh, I imagine she's quite enjoying having the chance to talk science with us today, given how busy that role must be. Uh, she is also an Officer of the Order of Australia, a representation of her remarkable impact on science communication. Uh, Emma's uh, work on marine, uh, marine ecology has taken her to Antarctica, to the Great Barrier Reef and to Sydney Harbour has seen her communicate in the press uh, and uh, on TV uh, and ensures that she is somebody who is part of the great conversation that Frank Fenner would have so, so admired as to how to ensure that science is very, very much part of our everyday lives. At the end of Emma's talk, she'll take questions as usual. We'll focus those questions uh, first on the younger members of the audience uh, and then open it up more broadly. Please welcome me, uh, join me now in welcoming Emma Johnson. Thank you for the kind introduction. I'm a little bit shorter than most people. And, um, and it's a great pleasure to be here today. You are very, very lucky that every year there is a fellow lecture, something that focuses not only on science uh, and ideas for curious minds, uh, but also that focuses on a lecture that is designed for younger generations. And we don't often get that. We often get lectures that are designed for the mature or the senior. Now, I hope I live up to expectations of the junior members of the audience in particular, and that I haven't gone too deep. Uh, sometimes, as a scientist, we get a little bit caught up in our own research, and we get a little bit too excited about the tiny little minutiae 
If I see any of you falling asleep, it'll remind me of my many years of being a lecturer. And, um, and that will bring back some nostalgic memories, but it will also speed me up, and hopefully I'll skip over some of the details. So um, I wanted to start today, um, hopefully, I wanted to start by moving a slide, but that didn't work. So let's, we may need some assistance, some technical assistance. No? While we call down the technical guy from the back, um, I'll... <laughs> Thank you. Is it? Okay. Thank you. We may need you down here. Sorry. Thanks. Um, so, I wanted to start by acknowledging the Ngunnawal people um, and all the traditional custodians of the lands of Australia. And when I say that, when I say lands, I also mean country, I also mean waters, and I mean oceans, and I mean coasts, uh, because the traditional custodians have a very close relationship and connection that goes back up to 60,000 years, possibly more. Um, and those connections to country are live, they're real, uh, and from them deep wisdom emanates about how Australia works, how our ecosystems work, um, how our people and those ecosystems are connected. And we would do well to listen more to the traditional custodians, the Indigenous people of Australia, and to understand their deep connections and how they might inform how we manage these precious ecosystems. Um, I am not in control, so next slide. The topics I wanted to touch on today and you know, they're quite deep and a little bit dark. Um, but I'm going to end with some really practical uh, things that we can all do to ensure a brighter future for our coasts and oceans. The topics I wanted to touch on today, they might not come, come up on the news and they might not come up in everyday conversation because they're kind of taking you out there and letting you have a think in multiple dimensions about the oceans and coasts. Thinking not only about the multiple dimensions of the species in interacting with so many different environmental conditions, but also through time. Um, and time is becoming more and more important to us. So I just want us to be thinking in those multiple dimensions, and they're hard to describe, but if you get lost, just close your eyes and imagine uh, these ecosystems. Imagine yourself in the ocean. Imagine yourself in one of those three-dimensional coral reefs with species moving around you, the water moving past you, but also time going by, and maybe that will help. So um, I'm gonna to touch on the great acceleration of our planet, um, but particularly how our oceans are accelerating. Uh, environmental stewardship, what that means and, and how it might help us. And then I will speak briefly about the State of Environment Report 2021, because that is uh, a most important report for us and the way that we constructed that report and wrote that report this time around is quite different to anything that's ever been done before and I think it helps us point towards the future. Okay, so let's go to the next slide. Um, and just talking about the great acceleration of the ocean. So how does an ocean speed up? And um, this is the big question. A lot of my research has been about how humans change ecosystems and I've particularly worked in coastal ecosystems 
from the tropics right the way down to the poles, and they all work at different seeds, those ecosystems. Very fast turnover in the tropics, very slow turnover at the poles. But what I've noticed, having now studied many different forms of human activity and their impacts in marine ecosystems, is that every single one of the major drivers from a human activity perspective on marine ecosystems, they're all acting in the same direction to speed the oceans up, to speed those ecosystems up. So what does that mean and how does it happen? We'll go to the next slide. Few factoids. Just a reminder, we're talking about most of the planet when we talk about the ocean. Um, although we tend to get obsessed with the little green bits that we live on, the ocean is 70% of the surface, but it's also incredibly deep. On average, about four kilometres deep. So again, thinking multi-dimensional kind of distance, you're, you're always thinking in three dimensions when you work in the oceans, because there's no such thing as just kind of the terrestrial flat layer of life. Life is throughout that deep body. Um, it's also the place where life evolved. And so, as a consequence, and in, in, for many different reasons, there are the most bizarre and astoundingly interesting organisms in marine environments that just don't even occur on land. And we're talking about a really deep phyletic level of differentiation here. And when I say that, I mean not just one species that's a sister species to another existing in the ocean. We're talking about the entire, if you think about the most simple analogy, the entire kingdoms, almost, living in the ocean that don't occur on land. So it's a, it's a very interesting place to work. Um, it's also a major regulator of climate, and you'll see a little bit more about why that's important in the moment. The one thing I just wanted to note is a lot of people, when they start talking about the ocean, they say, every second breath you take, the oxygen comes from the ocean. And while technically true, I just don't want people to be too worried about oxygen because the Earth's uh, bowl of oxygen that we have, that has been created by marine organisms for about 3.8 billion years, it's pretty secure. There's a lot of oxygen out there. Oxygen is not the main chemical that we need to be worried about. The main chemical we need to be worried about are the gases that heat up the atmosphere or that otherwise contaminate the atmosphere. And actually, they're getting a much larger proportion of the Earth's atmosphere and also of our oceans. But oxygen, very, very unlikely, even in the worst case scenario of burning all the trees down, and in the worst case scenario of climate change, we're not going to run out of oxygen. That was the good news part of the story, by the way. Next slide. What are we worrying about? So over the last 50, 70 years in particular, we have seen a great acceleration of human activity on Earth. And this diagram, you probably can't see the details, but it's just to show you a little bit and give you that impression of acceleration of human activity of human consumption, of human um, release of contaminants. And you can see that that paper was first um, published in 2004, and that quote is from 2004. It was updated recently in 2015, um, and things have only become more extreme in terms of consumption. If you go to the next slide, 
you'll see that we are making some really good advances in the sustainable development goals in relation to some of the social objectives, particularly around getting um, access to education for more children around the world, uh, which is a really wonderful thing. Uh, and some equity goals uh, are improving. Um, so that's the ones that are at the top. Goal three and goal four. However, it appears to be occurring at the expense of the environment. So when you look to the goals that are related to our ecosystems, then actually we've got negative trajectories and negative um, directions that we're moving in. So we're not making advances against those sustainable development goals. And they're the ones down the bottom as you can see. So to go to the next slide, a clever person has done an analysis of this in a couple of dimensions. And you'll see that where countries are meeting social thresholds, things that you know we think are acceptable, and Australia is one of those, in relation to education and equity and social justice, we are also over-exploiting environments. So there's a quite a strong correlation with the way that we improve life for people and then make things worse for our ecosystems. In the long run, that means we run out of the resources that we need to support that quality of life. And it means that we actually have to transform the way that we support equity and we support social justice and we support education and consumption and safety and housing and all of the good things that we really want. And I hope that slide um, makes that fairly clear. One thing that strikes you about this one is how well Vietnam is doing in terms of meeting some social goals, but also not over-consuming. So I think there are lessons to learn by looking at what's happening in different countries. If we go to the next slide. So what's a, what's a consequence of this and what's happening in the ocean? What's a consequence of all this extra consumption and production? Well, the major one that we're worried about at the moment, because it is the most existential threat, is climate change. So over-consumption of fossil fuels, production of greenhouse gases and the enveloping heat that becomes contained in the earth as a consequence of that has really impacted all of us already, um, but the oceans in particular that have absorbed most of the heat, the, the additional heat that has so far been produced. We as a society would be much worse off if those oceans hadn't absorbed that heat, but they have, and so we see record ocean temperatures around the globe. This, this data that you've seen in front of you is just been downloaded on Friday. So these are maps that are really fun. And if anyone wants to go and access this information, it's fully freely available in very high quality, um, almost real time on the web. So you can see the heat anomaly, which is how much hotter the oceans are relative to a baseline set in the 1971 to 2000 period, which is already an elevated heat scenario. So relative to that baseline, the red areas are hotter than that. And you can see right now at the moment, we're facing a very high likely scenario of that El Nino period starting. And you can see that signature with the heat in the ocean off Peru, which is looking like it's almost on fire. What you can also see, which is startling, is on the right-hand side, the um, ISIS 
and the sea ocean temperature, actually I normally look at the ice extent, I've given you the sea surface temperature here in the poles. So it's at 60 degrees north and 60 degrees south, which is technically where the Arctic and Antarctic begin. Once you go past that 60 degrees, you're in those zones. And the temperature of the waters at those locations is in absolutely uncharted territory right now. And that's that black line there. Next slide. So that's temperature. Now I mentioned that all of the drivers of human activity seem to be acting in concert to see that in the ecosystem. This is from some of my own work, just pulling together all of those types of disturbances that I've studied in marine ecosystems. And um, if you look closely, you've got temperature at the front, and you can see a couple of things that we predict would happen as temperature increases. So you get accelerated metabolic processes, you get um, that consequence being not so good for the larger species, better for the smaller species. You get increases in competition and susceptibility to extinction. Now, some of these are theoretical concepts. They've been predicted or they've been looked at through historical data sets, but it's what we would predict on the basis of what we've observed. Nutrient addition is something that people may or may not be thinking about. But any time you see a muddy river flowing out into the ocean, that's a whole lot of nutrients and organic matter moving from the terrestrial environment into the coast. And what we've done over the last 50 to 70 years in particular is added to that terrestrial, you know, the muds and the soils and the organic matter by agricultural activities that haven't been well managed so we've massively increased the runoff into those systems, but also by the incredible overuse of synthetic nitrogen fertilisers. We have fertilised the ocean. And the consequence of fertilising our oceans and coasts is that, again, we see that we prime it for greater productivity, for faster movement, for more production. And sometimes we tip that over the edge and we get a low oxygen zones that cause fish kills, for example. Disturbance itself is something that, as a marine ecologist, I use that term a lot, but it doesn't mean a lot to everyday life. It's anything that causes a major die-off. But disturbances in marine ecosystems that you might be familiar with uh, could be a marine heat wave, for example, so another heat effect, or it could be over-harvesting, so you know, trawling an area and destroying the habitat, but also taking all of the large organisms from that habitat. So that's a disturbance, and that, the way that speeds up ecosystems is it resets the whole community to start from scratch. It's a bit like clear fell in the forest. You clear fell a forest, all of the slower growing organisms that have been hundreds of years there supporting all the other biodiversity are gone, and you start from scratch with the weeds and the seedlings and the sap and things go much more quickly for a while. So it resets succession. If you disturb a forest every five years, you never get the old growth. Just like a, a marine ecosystem like the Great Barrier Reef glitches every five years, you'll never get a mature coral reef because it takes at least 15 years to get to that stage. Um, and finally, the other activity that we do a lot of uh, is move species around. So invasive species on land are well understood as a threat, but they're also a threat in our oceans and coasts. 
statistically our coasts. Over 2,000 species have been recorded on the hulls of ships being transported. And because 90% of global trade, so everything that we move from one country to the other, goes by sea, that's all through shipping activity, then every day we are moving in thousands of species across the ocean. And the species that tend to thrive in a new environment, in a disturbed environment, tend also to be the weedy, fast-growing species. So that's how all of those uh, activities of ours act in concert to move an ecosystem from what might be a slow, old-growth forest or a large coral reef to uh, a weedier type of ecosystem. It doesn't mean everything's dead. It means things are smaller, they're faster, they're reproducing more quickly. And, and why should we care about that? Well, first of all, we will lose a lot of species. But secondly, it means that everything we do, all of the ways in which we rely on the marine ecosystems, and we do rely on them, not only for you know, climate control, but also for our food and our sustenance, for clean water, all of the ways in which we rely on ecosystem services will have to change because the speed of those ecosystems and what they produce will change. And to just give you a really practical example, if there are no more large fish in the sea, well then we won't be eating shark, which is the main thing that we eat when we eat fish and chips, because there won't be any sharks left. But we could be eating a lot of seaweed, and we could be eating fried jellyfish, and we could be eating, and people don't like the idea of fried jellyfish, I'm sure it'd be delicious. Um, and we could be eating filter feeders, for example, like mussels and oysters, which are delicious, um, because they are organisms that feed well on the food chain and that can grow quickly and reproduce quickly. So that's just an example of how we, what we do is going to have to respond to what we have done. Next slide. Um, I'm going to skip through a couple because I've taken a long time already and I want to have a question. So these are just a, a few slides. I'll just move through them quickly so you get the gist, but a few slides that show some of these ecosystem drivers. This one's pollution. Next slide. This is tropical pressure, so this is the invasive species, and if you transport more, you get more invasions. Next slide. Yep. And this is marine bleaching that you will have heard about. Very happy to answer questions about that. So coral reef bleaching, for example. And the next slide. And these are three examples of what we reported on in the last state of environment of coastal ecosystems that were impacted by a disturbance that happened in the last five years. And these disturbances were of incredible scale. It's estimated that 40% of the coast of Australia, and the coast of Australia is 66,000 kilometres long, depending on how you measure it, but 40% of that coast over the last decade was subject to a major disturbance like this. And I wanted to just pause here and give you another example of how things are changing. The way that our ecosystems are impacted is also changing and the nature of the impacts is extending through climate effects in ways, in ways that we don't always think of. The latest study that I did which examined a new type of threat to coastal ecosystems was a result of the bushfires. So you think of bushfires. 
how bushfires impact coastal ecosystems. The water can't burn. Well, what happens is that when the land burns, everything that burns on the land then gets run off into the rivers. And for decades, we have known that that has caused problems for our freshwater systems like lakes and ponds, where we get our drinking water, and also um, our rivers. But for the first time ever, the study that we did documented the impacts of bushfires in coastal ecosystems. And the reason it suddenly had such a big such a effect in the coast was the extent and the severity of the bushfires that hit in 2019 and 2020, which you all probably remember. That was so great and it was so substantial that up to 90% of our catchments burnt. Uh, and so all of the surrounding vegetation of our coastal ecosystems, including the estuaries, was impacted. And I pivoted my research team, who were already working in these areas, to do a post-fire assessment. And so after these fires, if you go to the next slide, this is what the estuary, sides of the estuaries would look like. So you can imagine these big slugs of material coming into our estuaries. And if you go to the next slide, This is a bit of a complicated slide, but it basically showed that the estuaries that had no buffer between the fire and the, and the waterway had a great big slug of metals, nutrients, total organic carbon and pyrogenic carbon coming into those ecosystems all of a sudden, which impacted the eDNA, which is a way that we measure community diversity now. And the consequences of which, again, are to fertilise the estuaries. So just the same as we have been doing for decades by releasing nutrients and fertilizer and sewage into these systems, we are now adding bushfire material. Okay, next slide. So I've described some of the compounding effects of our activities on our oceans. Uh, the future of our oceans looks like it's getting faster and faster and faster, and the way that we interact with these oceans has to change. What can we do to slow it down? And this is where stewardship comes in, and it's a very, very important concept, and it's one that we've been working on through working in collaboratively with social scientists and talking to people about how they care about coasts and what they do to look after coasts and how that interacts with the future of our coasts. And the, the diagram you here see here is a positive circle instead of a vicious circle. So the moment we seem to be in a vicious circle of impacting ecosystems, then making it worse without response. What we want to do is spin that round and turn it into a positive cycle. Um, and that's just kind of where social wellbeing and ecosystem health are positively correlated across the globe, not like at the moment where they're negatively correlated. Next slide. Can we grab the pointer? Okay. So on the right hand side you can see a vicious circle um, and often these days these um, vicious circles mean um, that everything can get worse, but there are also tipping points where even a small push in one direction can make things dramatically worse. Um, and that's what we're seeing in the climate systems. 
to give you an example from my own research, and give you an explicit talk about diving under the ice in Antarctica, which I'm sure many of you would like to do. Um, we study the ecosystems that are under maybe four or five metres of ice in Antarctica. So you get into your dry suit. Um, that, that means you look like a big orange Velcro thing. And you have a full face mask, so you can talk to people at the surface. And you have air coming down from the surface, because if the ice hole closes over, you don't want to run out of air and not be able to get back up. So once you're all suited up, you jump in, and you can go down through very, quite a few metres of ice, and then all of a sudden, you're in the ocean. It doesn't look like you're going to be in the ocean, because the ocean looks like it's hundreds of kilometres away. But all of a sudden, there you are in the ocean. And in these very special environments under the ice, it's as if you're diving in the deep sea, but you might only be in five or ten metres of water. And why is that? Because it's so dark, and the deep sea is dark, right? At about 200 metres, there is no more light anymore, and most of the ocean is four kilometres deep. So most of the ocean is working without light. And in these little coastal ecosystems around Antarctica, for most of the year, they're also living without light. So instead of a big, great, great big abundant um, coral reef or a big kelp forest, you've got deep sea-like organisms, so sponges as tall as me, which admittedly isn't very tall, but you know, impressive sponge, um, anemones the size of you know, humongous baskets, fields full of polychaete, poppy, um, polychaete worms that look like fields of poppies. And these are all under the ice, living quite happily, living quite slowly, but happily. Um, and what we're seeing with climate tipping points is the sea ice is changing. And so if the sea ice breaks out from these areas, as it does most summers, if it breaks out only a couple of days earlier than it usually did, the amount of light hitting the surface of the, or the bottom of the sea changes dramatically because in the Antarctic and the Arctic, in the middle of winter, it's pitch black all day long. In the middle of summer, it's sunlight all day long. It's very hard to go to sleep. Sometimes you get a sunset that lasts six hours, which is very beautiful, but hard to sleep with. And so if you change the amount of sea ice during the summer, you can get 24 hours of sunlight for a couple of days that would never have ever hit the ocean floor before. And what are the consequences of that? Well, our work is predicting that we will lose these precious little ecosystems. Because, and when we did this work, this was all a prediction and everybody said that's not going to happen. It's back in about 2012. They were saying that because they said Antarctica is protected by circumpolar current and the circumpolar winds, the roaring 40s. And through that, it's isolated. And it's going to stay cold. It's like, it's going to stay in the freezer. And we said, well, only for so long. And sure enough, in the last two years, we're starting to see dramatic reductions in sea ice in Antarctica. So what we think will happen is these precious ecosystems that look quite bizarre and for which we don't know the extent or the species composition or whether there are refuge species for these communities will transform into algal communities because those systems will be outcompeted by algae that we know lives only a few kilometres away in Antarctica.
that is a really positive. And this is the Antarctic sea ice extent. I won't go through it in detail. So, how is environmental stewardship going to turn around these vicious circles or these vicious cycles? Well, what we've done, talking to people and mapping people's values and what they do, especially the stewards, against ecosystem outcomes across the Australian coast, is we found that where communities are connected to country, sea country, where they have the opportunity to look after it, where they have the opportunity to enjoy it, and that doesn't mean that they don't fish necessarily. Some of our top stewards are you know, really passionate recreational fishers. It just means they do things sustainably and in a responsible way. Where that is, um, where the stewardship is high and people have control of their local ecosystems, then out the outlook is better, the biodiversity is higher, the fish are bigger, etc. So there's a whole lot of positive values. And that's when you get a virtuous circle. And it um, is something that I think we are all going to have to work towards. It's going to be a collective effort. We're going to turn these cycles around. And it's something that children can contribute to in a huge way, no matter what age you are. This diagram here is the actual data showing what I'm just talking about where the maximum stewardship value in a site, so how much people cared about this site, looked after it, were optimistic about it, correlates with something as simple as the number of big fish in an area. And that means we're going to need to give our, our ecosystems a little bit of help. Because stewardship doesn't happen in public places unless it's supported by both community action and policy and legislation. Otherwise, we suffer from um, what we call the tragedy of the public good, where everybody thinks, if I don't take it, someone else will. So the policy and the legislations that can help in this circumstance are where we act in concert to reduce carbon emissions, for example, and we are all encouraged to reduce our carbon emissions, but also it is legislatively required, but also that we do simple things like create marine protected areas. And I was really excited this week to hear from Tanya Plibersek, who tripled the size of the marine protected area around Macquarie Island, which is a sub-Antarctic island, absolutely spectacular place full of elephant seals. I mean, you walk around a tussock, they have giant brass tussocks that come up to here, and you can walk around one of these giant grass tussocks and all of a sudden you'll hear this incredibly loud snort. And you think, well, why is that grass tussock snorting? But instead, behind the grass tussock, there will be a 3,000 kilogram elephant seal, just kind of rubbing up against it, feeling grumpy because it's multiple. And so this island is a, a oasis in the middle of the Southern Ocean, um, and now has a very, very large marine protected area on it. Uh, which is, importantly, 93% fully protected from extractive activities, and they're the marine parks that actually work. Um, in Australia, we have a long way to go, because although we have very large areas of marine protected area, not much of it is fully protected. 
if you take the Great Barrier Reef, it was an outstanding example of marine park planning and remains globally relevant today. It has 30% of the entire area fully protected from extracted activities, and that's the recommended amount. That's what Australia is now aiming for. So I'm going to finish. Have I taken too much time? I'm still going. I'll keep going. I'll try and get through this. I just wanted to finish with the state environment because it is, it's very different from previous ones. For those of you who don't know the state environment report, it's fully online and fully searchable. So I encourage you to get online. You can find out whatever you want about any kind of environment. Okay. Now let's stop working. Okay, before I start, I just want to thank in particular Ian Cressel and Terry Janke, my co-chief authors, but there are actually 34 authors of the State of Environment Report that I want to acknowledge because there are chapters on everything about the environment. But we also had an enormous number of contributors from across Australia and the globe who gave their data, their time, their case studies to make this report what it is. Next slide. Next one. <laughs> so, around the world, state environment reports are a fairly common approach to kind of getting a snapshot of where your, where your environment is at this point in time. But very few of them actually incorporate two things that we did this time around. Very few of them have an Indigenous voice and very few of them consider human well-being. They mostly just report on the physico-chemical and biological components of the world. Next slide. This report is independent, uh, and so every year, every five years, although it's commissioned by the Commonwealth Government, it's written independently. No one tells us what to write. It is commissioned, and the experts decide the content, the structure, and what comes out. So it is, it's a very evidence-based report, and it's highly trusted by community. Next slide. It's designed differently to a scientific paper. So it kind of makes all of us scientists involved a little bit uncomfortable. What we're trying to do is in plain English the state of environment together and understand its trajectory. But we're also deliberately trying to encourage action to protect the environment. So there are components in there which are about engaging people, helping them get moving, helping them get active. Um, and that's why I encourage you to read Next slide. platform along with the Sandals Review of the Environment Protection Act 
as the basis for a lot of activity. And so the report has been quite influential. Um, it is the first to include an Indigenous chapter entirely authored by Indigenous authors, but it's also the first to have an Indigenous uh, co-author on almost every chapter except Antarctica and air quality. Um, so we can do better next time on that one. But this, what we did was we incorporated the Indigenous voice throughout the report. It is also the first to link to wellbeing and the SDGs. Okay, next slide. The two new chapters in this report that I encourage you to have a look at in particular is an entirely new chapter on extreme events. And these are climate-related extreme events, so droughts, floods, fires, marine heat waves. Uh, in particular. And the reason we had to introduce that brand new chapter, this is the sixth environment report they've done every five years, but we've never had this chapter before, is over the last five years, almost every part of Australia has been impacted by extreme events. And it warranted an entire chapter of its own because the consequences are dramatic, severe, um, and very problematic. The other uh, new chapter was the entirely Indigenous chapter. Next slide. The Indigenous authors uh, worked really, really, really hard. They worked hard to write their own chapter, but also to contribute to all the other chapters. And because the Indigenous knowledge is not always a written form of knowledge, the way that they collected their information was through other mechanisms such as yarning circles. And what we did right at the beginning of this work, because it was an experiment, you know, working these two knowledge systems together, was we sat down together and we worked out collaborative guidelines where we could respect each other's knowledge systems and we could say, this is the way that we will acknowledge our evidence and authorship and cite other publications and this is the way the Indigenous authors will do the same for their knowledge system. But then instead of just kind of separating it and putting it into boxes, we actually wove those knowledge systems together. So it's a quite unique report if you have a look inside. Next slide. Okay. I'll, I'll finish off um, verbally without any, any diagrams, that's absolutely correct. Don't worry about it, guys, I can, I can finish yeah. um, The main thing I think is the take home message, and it relates back to building stewardship and um, turning our research cycles into virtuous ones is that writing the report together with Indigenous authors and explicitly asking all of our authors to consider human wellbeing and the consequences of the state environment on human health and outlook and wealth and our spiritual um, health and our connection to the country was that the report is far more impactful because people can dig in and they can see what the current state of environment means for their, themselves, their children, and their children's children. And the consequences are quite you know, worrying. As a group of authors, it was very challenging to write this report because the state of most of our environments is poor and deteriorating. It's poor now because of the history of exploitation, of land clearing, invasive species, pollution and disturbance, all of the things I talked about at the beginning. But it's deteriorating because in the forward projections, we compound all of those historical problems 
with climate change. So we layer on top of that heat, acidification and extreme events. And that combination means that the trajectory going forward is very poor. Working together and understanding the connection between the environment and well-being and understanding the virtuous circle of stewardship where we look after environment and we um, improve that environment and it improves us and our well-being, that is absolutely critical. It's critical that everyone in every primary school and every high school is thinking about innovating and understanding ecosystems and finding new ways to work with them and finding new ways to live with our coastal ecosystems protect our coastal ecosystems and obviously reduce carbon emissions and other contaminants so that they, those coastal ecosystems have a chance to recover, restore and also adapt to the changing climate. So I think there's a positive news story there. We've written a whole new report, we've experimented with new ways of working. We also have a huge amount of evidence to say that when people are connected to country and when people are connected to their waters and their oceans, then things do turn around. So I'm going to leave you with that positive note.